It's interesting, Ed's birthday is Saturday, 70 years old. I think he mentioned that when he was here. Ed's almost exactly 15 years older than me. 15 years minus six weeks or plus six weeks or plus or minus, something like that. I also ran into another of my mentors recently, Pancho Juarez, and Pancho is, I think, 72, and he's going strong. He was speaking at a marriage conference in Corpus Christi over the weekend. He's on his way to teach at Calvary Poughkeepsie, which was the first Calvary other than my home church um, that I taught as a guest speaker, so I've got a fondness for for that fellowship. But I, I'm thinking of these guys, these older brothers in the Lord. And I'm thinking, okay, 15 years down the road, if I'm Ed, if I'm Pancho, what does the Lord have for me if, if my health continues, if Jesus tarries? And that 15 years is an interesting figure because tonight we're going to look at Hezekiah and the 15 years that God added to his life. We're in Isaiah 38, by the way, if I didn't mention that. God numbers our days. We say that. We toss that around. That's a good Christianese kind of a slogan. God numbers our days. The question that we need to ask ourselves as believers in Jesus Christ is what do we do with those days? Isaiah 38 in those days, verse 1, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And as we dive in, it's important to recognize the those days, the those days that Isaiah is talking about are a little out of order. They actually happened before where we left off. Those days that we're about to read about happened before the siege of Jerusalem by Sennacherib's army in 701 B.C. How do we know? Glance down at verse 6. Verse 6, God says through Isaiah, I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. So the siege of Jerusalem hadn't happened yet. The Assyrian army was still a threat. The angel of the Lord hadn't slain 185,000 in a night and scattered the rest and driven Sennacherib back to Nineveh. Not a big deal. Not particularly sub significant or substantial. Just, you know, just a little flashback, and Scripture does that. It's only a big deal if we don't notice it, and then it gets a little confusing. But verse 1, In those days Hezekiah was sick and near death, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. I love it when prophets come to me with uplifting messages like that. Set your house in order. What does he mean? Hezekiah had no son, had no heir at this point. So what he's saying is figure out who's going to be the king after you, because you're not going to be king very much longer. Because you can't be king if you're a corpse. At which point Isaiah leaves. His message is delivered. His job is done. He's a prophet, not a pastor. Prophets don't need to have a bedside manner. Isaiah's done, but Hezekiah's not done. Hezekiah, turns out, is just getting started. Verse 2, then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord. 
and said, well, let's just stop there for a second. Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord. He turned his face to the wall. Why is that significant? It tells us he wasn't going for sympathy. He wasn't praying in a way that says, hey, watch me, pay attention to me. You see me praying here? I'm being spiritual now, check it out. You know, it's not why we're outside tonight. We're not outside primarily calling attention to ourselves. Hey, we're Calvary, we're spiritual. Hey, if someone hears the gospel over the course of the evening, praise God. But we're not here to call attention to ourselves, we're here to call attention to Jesus. Hezekiah isn't calling attention to himself, he wants to have a conversation with God. And he doesn't care who does or doesn't hear, who is or isn't paying attention, who notices or ignores. I've been listening to a lot of Maverick City lately, Christian worship group, and they collaborate with lots of people, which, which means they have a lot of different sounding songs. And so some of them I really like, and some of them I can take or leave, and some of them I don't care for. I've got a couple friends of friends that have done some music with them, and that's what first draw drew my attention. But they've got some stuff that really speaks to me. There's a song, I think it's on the, the Church Basement album, Talking to Jesus. And, and the song is about prayer. And the idea behind the song is, hey, prayer isn't religion. It's not formality. It's not ritual. And there's a line that says it's more like a friend. They catch you guessing because the first time you hear it, oh, it's not religion, it's more, than, or it's more like, and you're ready to say relationship. But, but they take it a step deeper. It's more like a friend. Now, that wasn't exactly Hezekiah's relationship with God, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. Because Hezekiah was an old covenant guy. We're new covenant people. But for us, let's talk about us for a minute. We talk to our friends differently than we talk to other folks, don't we? Especially when we're alone with our friends. When there's no audience, nobody overhearing, we don't have to edit. We don't have to choose our words. We know even if we don't say it right, we'll, we'll get grace to say it again. We'll get grace to fix it, to, to keep fixing it until we get our point across. Because that's what friendship is. Two people who have decided to understand each other. And it's worth asking. We're just getting started, but it's worth asking because I think that there's a lot going on there at the very beginning of verse 2. Is that our prayer life? Do we turn away from observers and expectations and just talk to a friend? Or is our prayer more like a speech that we recite for an imaginary audience? We don't have to try to impress God. We need to be impressed by God and the lengths that he went to to become friends with us so that we could be friends with him. The lengths that he went to to bridge that gap so that fellowship, relationship could be restored. We get to go with him, uh, go to him and talk to him as a friend, as a father, as family. And it doesn't matter what anybody else hears or thinks about what they hear or doesn't hear. We're talking to a friend. Now Hezekiah's relationship a little different, like I said. Still verse 2, Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord. 
and said, Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I've walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what is good in your sight. Hezekiah wasn't a friend of God the same way that we're friends with God. He wasn't indwelt by God. Jesus wasn't the mediator between him and God the Father. He was an old covenant guy. And the rules of engagement under the old covenant, God says, I'll bless those who obey me. I'll curse those, punish those who disobey me. That was the plan. That was the program. Hezekiah's prayer was based on that. Hezekiah's prayer, he begins by saying, God, I've obeyed. I've been a pretty good guy. All things being equal, I've gotten it right more than I've gotten it wrong. On that basis, God, would you hear my prayer? Understand that, not us. Our prayer life is much deeper, much richer, much better, because it's not on the basis of our obedience. Our prayer life is based on what? Jesus and his obedience. God hears our prayers because Jesus was obedient and went to the cross, became sin for us, bore God's wrath for us, gave us his righteousness and his relationship with the Father. Jesus is the son of the Father, and you and I are adopted sons and daughters because of the cross. And so we go to the Father, and we know this, but just in case anyone's listening tonight, we go to the Father on the basis of the Son. That's the only way to God. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Him. We had a young man at church doing community service this week. He said, you guys keep saying Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Why don't you just say God? And I said, well, we could. And that would be true, and that would be right. But Jesus is more true and more right because it's through Jesus that we get to talk to God. It's because of Jesus that we are friends with God. And what we ask in his name, we receive every time. What we ask in the name of Jesus, we either get what we're asking for or we get something better. Hezekiah didn't have that privilege. He didn't have that prerogative. Instead, the best that he could do is say, God, look at my life. And then that wasn't nothing. 2 Kings 18, you can turn there or just listen. We've been there a lot in recent weeks. The, one of the parallel passages to what we're reading. 2 Kings 18, verse 3, speaking of Hezekiah, he did, right, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. That's a pretty high standard. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the children of Israel burned incense to it. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, listen, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. He was good as kings of Judah got people i think take this too far some people say well that means that he exceeded david i don't think so because when we read the standard of comparison it's always david 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 was king over all of israel the united kingdom and so if you have to choose between david 
Saul and Solomon. Well, that's a clear choice. But I think that once the kingdom divided, what the Holy Spirit is saying is Hezekiah set the bar. Hezekiah was the standard. So under the old covenant, where God rewards those who obey him and punishes those who disobey him, Hezekiah had as good a basis as anyone to go to God, at least as, as good a basis as any king, to go to God and say, God, I've done what you asked. Hear my prayer. And so he did. And when he was done, back to 38 verse 3, Hezekiah, when he was done praying, wept bitterly. People jump off in all kinds of directions with that, with a lot of things in this chapter. But Hezekiah wept bitterly. What does that mean? What is, what is that telling us? And you can find commentators who say, well, Hezekiah was assuming that God was angry at him, that he was going to die before his time. He was going to die early. So God was punishing him for some disobedience that he didn't understand. I mean, maybe, maybe that's what Hezekiah was thinking. You can find a lot of commentators who will base a sermon on verse 3, the second part. Hezekiah wept bitterly. Oh, he realized that all his good deeds weren't enough. He realized that his, his good deeds, the sum of them, the, 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 the sigma of all of them, was, uh, was a, a pile of, of filthy rags. Used toilet paper is the less polite expression. I, I think... I, Maybe, but I personally think that that's maybe just an excuse for preachers to preach the gospel. Like it's a little eisegesis there. David Gusick, who I respect tremendously, leaps from this to talk about how Hezekiah didn't have the understanding of death and salvation that we have. He was weeping because he didn't know what was on the other side. He didn't know what was waiting for him after death. And, and that's certainly true. The Old Testament saints had a, had a very dark, confused, imperfect understanding of heaven and hell and death and salvation. I, it, could, it could be that. It could be all of those. It could be a combination of those. Or it could just be simpler. He could be weeping because Isaiah told him he was going to die. And death to all of us seems wrong. All the time. We were singing God is good all the time and all the time. Death is wrong all the time and all the time death is wrong. Or so it seems to us. And our Christian minds, our Christian hearts, we try to override that. We say, well, no, to, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and that's good. To live is Christ, but to die is gain because you're with Jesus and that's good. And we say that and we believe that because it's true. But there's an awful lot of time where it isn't comforting. It isn't in the moment enough to overcome. I, I think on a cellular level, on a genetic level, our, our bodies, our flesh crying out and saying it isn't supposed to be this way. And it wasn't. We weren't supposed to know death. We weren't supposed to know that kind of separation. Oh, you know, to the Lord a thousand days is, uh, you know, a day is a thousand years. So well, our loved ones are going to be in heaven from their perspective for a few seconds and then we'll be there. That's great. But we weren't supposed to be separated at all. I don't know. I don't know why Hezekiah wept. I know that he did. And I know that as he prayed and as he wept, God answered. I know that because that's what comes next. 
The word of the Lord came to Isaiah, verse 4, saying, Go and tell Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I've heard your prayer, I've seen your tears. Surely I will add to your day 15 years. Because prayer changes things. I don't know that the weeping is significant to God answering the prayer. Did he pray to the point of weeping? And, and that, that I, don't, I don't know. I don't know that there's significance to that. It may be that because he was a child of David, a descendant of David, that had, that had an impact on his prayer. That he was weeping because he didn't have a son and, and, and perhaps, going on on a skinny branch here, but it's Wednesday night, so we do that. Perhaps part of his prayer was, God, I'm going to be the reason that you break your promise because God had promised that a descendant of David would sit on the throne for eternity. And maybe Hezekiah was weeping, God, I, I don't know what I did, but somehow I'm going to be the reason that you break your promise. We don't know. But God said, you're going to live 15 more years. That troubles some people. Because some people look at that and they say, well, that, that, that makes God sound kind of flaky. You're going to die. Ah, no, just kidding. You're going to die. Oh, didn't mean it. Psych. God gets to change his mind. And, yeah, one way to go is, is, is to say, well, he still died. God said, you know, through Isaiah, you're going to die. He still died. It was just 15 years later. And, and okay, that's, that's one way to reconcile it. But I don't, I don't feel compelling need even to do that. I'm okay that God changed his mind. Because from our perspective, our limited perspective, our three and a half dimensions of perspective, God seems messy because he dwells outside of time because he's omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent. So, so God is playing chess while, while we're trying to figure out tic-tac-toe. God changed his mind. That doesn't boggle my mind because he did it with Moses, didn't he? God said, okay, we're going to start over. You guys are wicked. You guys are useless. So this generation is going to die out. We're going to start over. And, and Moses says, but God, for your namesake, so that the nations will see. And God relented. Abraham prayed, and God relented. Jesus prayed in the garden. And God didn't relent, but Jesus prayed, which, which the fact that he said, Father, if there's another way, let this cup pass, that means that Jesus knew that there was at least a possibility that God might go to plan B. Prayer changes things. I don't think that, that God didn't know what he was going to do. I think that God allows for our free will. And God said, Hezekiah, you're going to die now. But in his mind, he's thinking, unless you pray. And if you pray, you're going to die 15 years from now. Prayer changes things. And that shouldn't boggle our imagination. When we pray a prayer of repentance, when we pray, God, I'm done going my way. I'm done living for myself. I'm ready to follow Jesus. Forgive me of my sin. I'm ready to turn around. When we say, I'm ready to change my heart, God changes our whole eternity. 
He changes everything about his relationship toward us. Prayer changes things. And it changes things here. You're going to live another 16 years, Hezekiah. And verse 6, and something else. And I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. Sennacherib hasn't come against Jerusalem yet, but God is promising, hey, here's what's going to happen when he does. When chapters 36 and 37 happen, here's what I'm going to do. God says, notice in verse 6, God says, I'm going to give you what you asked for. You asked for a longer life, done. And I'm going to do more than that. Why? Because that's who God is. Ed told us this weekend, he reminded us, that God is the God who delights to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we could ask or think. If we can think of it, God wants to do more than that. If we can think of it, if we can pray it, it's too small. Ed talking about a world summit of, of, of political leaders, foot washing and baptism and surrender to Jesus Christ boggles the imagination. Seems ridiculous, seems absurd. But if we can think of it, God can do more than that. But definition. God continues, verse 7. So you know it's me talking, he says to Hezekiah. So you know that it's me, and so you know that I mean it. This is the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing which he's spoken. Behold, I'll bring the shadow on the sundial, which has gone down with the sun on the sundial of Ahaz, 10 degrees backward. So this is one of those times where God says, I'm going to do a short-term prophecy, super short-term, like today. And when that's fulfilled, you're going to have a little bit more confidence in the long-term fulfillment of the longer-term prophecy. The sundial is going to go backwards, and that's how you know you're going to live 50 more years. That's how you know I'm going to womp up on Sennacherib's army. 2 Kings 20, it's worth listening to the expanded version, the extended dance mix that we have in the historical books of this same passage. 2 Kings 20, verse must be verse 8. Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What is the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord the third day and, and be healed? And Hezekiah, uh, then Isaiah said, This is the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing which he has spoken. Question, Shall the shadow go forward 10 degrees or backward 10 degrees? And Hezekiah said, well, forward is normal, so let's go backward because that would really be remarkable. A little bit more color, a little bit more flavor there. What we get in 2 Kings that we don't get in Isaiah is that Hezekiah is given a choice. God says, what sign do you want me to do? Ooh, wait, deja vu. That's happened before, hasn't it? That happened with Hezekiah's dad. That happened to Papa Ahaz back in chapter 7. He was given the same opportunity, remember? God says, I'll deal with, Assyria, uh, with uh, Syria and Israel, the threats of Ahaz's day. I'll deal with them. I'm going to stamp them out like cigarette butts. I'll prove to you that I'm going to do it. Pick a sign, any sign. And we remember Isaiah 7, Ahaz said, Oh, I, I couldn't ask the Lord for a sign. That would be impertinent. That would be inappropriate. When God says it's okay, it's okay. When God says pick a sign, you pick a sign. Hezekiah didn't repeat his father's mistake. God said pick a sign, and he did. And verse 8, back in Isaiah 38, the sun returned 10 degrees on the dial by which it had gone down. And if 
you want to see some symbolism there, the clock went backwards. And so too, Hezekiah's clock went backwards. He, he was given more time. I don't know what you do with that. But in response to all of that, Hezekiah prays again. Verse 9, he writes down a prayer, in fact. This is the writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and recovered from his sickness. He writes a psalm, basically. I said, verse 10, In the prime of my life I shall go down to the gates of Sheol. I'm deprived of the remainder of my years. It's just a poetic way of saying, I'm too young to die. I said, I shall not see Yah, the Lord, in the land of the living. I'm not going to get to worship at the temple anymore. I shall observe man no more among the inhabitants of the world, because I'm going to die. My lifespan is gone, verse 12, taken from me like a shepherd's tent. And we were familiar with that metaphor, that idiom. We live in a tent, a temporary dwelling place. I'm about to move on from my temporary dwelling place. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm going somewhere. I've cut off my life like a weaver. He cuts me off from the loom. I'm a thread. I'm being cut, detached from the tapestry of life. From day until night, you make an end of me. Because he's still sick as a dog. I've considered until morning, like a lion, so he breaks all my bones. From day until night, you make an end of me. He, he, this is how he felt before the conversation with Isaiah. This is how I felt Friday, Thursday night into Friday. I got food poisoning. I was afraid I wasn't going to die. <clears throat> like a crane or a swallow, so I chattered. I mourned like a dove. My eyes fail from looking upward. Oh, Lord, I'm oppressed. Undertake for me. And at the very, very end there, he references his prayer. Lord, the only one who can save you is, the only one who can save me is you. I have no hope in myself. I have no hope in this life. I have no hope in anything but you. Now, verse 15, that, that, that was, that's the before. Verse 15, we transition to the after. We see that in Psalms of David a lot. David wails and whines and gnashes his teeth and talks about how bad things are and how worse things are and how black things are. But God, in almost every Psalm, there's that but God pivot point, and, and that's what we have at verse 15. What shall I say, now looking back at God's deliverance? He has both spoken to me, and he himself has done it. He told me he was going to heal me, he healed me. I shall walk carefully all my years. Underline that, we're going to come back to that. O Lord, by these things men live. By what things? By your words. We live, we move, we have our being by the word of God. And in all these things is the life of my spirit. So you will restore me and make me live, because it's your good will to do so, he's saying. Indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness, but you've lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption, for you've cast all my sins behind your back. Bitterness is a little cryptic. Bitterness at the early death, at the lack of an heir, that, that there wasn't a descendant to sit on the throne that he disregarded Isaiah and tried to buy off Assyria when Isaiah told him not to. Whatever it was, it's in the past. Whatever sin God was holding against him has been forgiven. <clears throat> and because he's forgiven, verse 18, Sheol cannot thank you, death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your truth, but the living, the living man, he shall praise you as I do this day. The Father shall make known the truth to the children. Remember, he's got an imperfect death. So from his perspective, once you're dead, well, you can't go to the temple. You can't offer sacrifice. You can't praise the Lord. We don't really know 
whether on the paradise side of Sheol there was praise and worship. Probably there was. It seems likely that there was. I can't think of an example that tells us that there was. Now that that side of Sheol is empty, now that Jesus has led captivity captive, those souls, the, the, the uh, resurrection is a son. In the 15 years that God gave him, he had a son. His name was Manasseh, and he was a really bad guy. If Hezekiah was the best or among the best, he was certainly the best of the kings of Judah. Manasseh was unquestionably the worst. 2 Kings 21, we read verse 2 succinctly. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. The Canaanites that God used the children of Israel to destroy. Uh, Yeah, Manasseh was that bad. And a few verses below that, God holds Manasseh directly responsible for the conquest of Judah by Babylon. Manasseh forced my hand, God's going to say. Manasseh was, was so evil, I had no choice but to judge the southern kingdom of Judah. And, and, and from that, there are some who conclude, well, then the Hezekiah's whole prayer was misguided. Hezekiah shouldn't have prayed the way that he prayed. The whole thing was, was a misadventure from the start. When Hezekiah said, add, add years to my life so that I can have a son, no, he should have just quietly accepted his faith. He should have just kept his mouth shut and pulled the covers over his head and died. Because then maybe Judah had, would have averted disaster. I don't agree. I, I agree we should be humble in prayer. I agree that when we go before God's throne of grace, we should not presume to know what's best. We should never, never go to God to order him around or think that we can compel him or dictate what he should do. At the same time, when we pray in Jesus' name, what are we saying? We're saying, I've thought about this, I've considered it. I've considered what I'm about to pray in the light of your word, in the light of your character revealed in your word, and I think this is consistent. I think I'm asking something that's consistent with your your character and with your word and with your will. And when I pray in Jesus' name, I'm, I'm, I'm saying something else. I'm saying that Jesus is going to carry this prayer before God's throne of grace. He's the mediator between us and God the Father. What does a mediator do? He argues for us. He speaks for us. He takes our prayer and says, this is what Patrick would pray if he knew what he was talking about. This is what Patrick would pray if he really understood what was going on. This is what Patrick would pray if he knew everything that we knew. And so let's say that he prayed this. I think it's a mistake to say, well, Hezekiah prayed wrong and Judah crashed and burned because of it. We shouldn't pray scared. Jesus died so we wouldn't have to pray scared. We shouldn't, we shouldn't because if we, if we pray scared, what, what that's going to translate into very quickly is we're not going to pray at all. Or we're going to pray very, very meekly, very timidly, not boldly. God wants us to pray huge prayers. Why? He wants us to pray prayers that acknowledge that only a huge God, a good God, a great God could answer them. We honor God. We worship God. We declare His glory with big prayers. And we won't do that if we pray scared. 
We don't, we, we don't compel. Prayer changes things, but prayer doesn't compel things. God is still on the throne. He hasn't relinquished his kingship. Our prayers don't compel him. But sometimes, and this is weird, but sometimes our prayers free him to do the thing that he won't do unless we pray, until we pray. Sometimes our prayers join with him and open up channels of love and mercy that otherwise we would not access. But we don't have to worry about, about compelling God to do something that's going to turn out bad. God still loves us. He could have said no to Hezekiah. He can always say no to us. Don't be afraid of, of, of praying big prayers. God's good at closing doors. He can find people who disagree. But I don't think the problem with the prayer, the, the, the problem with Hezekiah, I don't think the, 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 the takeaway, the moral of the story, the application of our, of our study is, is pray scared. I think where Hezekiah gets it wrong isn't what happens next. And time's getting away from us, and we've got another week to delve into it. But just quickly, Manasseh turns out to be a bad guy. Is that because Hezekiah prayed the wrong prayer? I don't think so. Is that because Hezekiah was a bad dad? I don't know so. Hezekiah could have been a horrible father. He could have been a great father. It's not clear. We all know people who grew up in godly homes with godly parents, immersed in the word, loved in Jesus' name every day of their life, who still walk away from the Lord who still go out and, and, and choose to live in the world and do crimes and do evil. Because free will. And we also know that, that, that I mean, sometimes siblings close in age, in the same home, same environment, same parents, same love, same circumstances. One will go one way, one will go another way. Okay, genetics are the same. Environment is the same. What's the difference? Free will to follow the Lord, to treasure his word, to walk in his ways, or not. Manasseh? We don't know what made Manasseh Manasseh. We know that it was horrific. We know that it was tragic. Was Hezekiah accountable? The Lord knows. But here's what we know. If we glance just a little bit into chapter 39, we know that Hezekiah lost his way. We know that Hezekiah didn't follow through in what he said he was going to do in verse 15. He said he was going to walk carefully. Verse 19 and 20, he said that he was going to devote his life to praise. But chapter 39 is a story of him getting sloppy and opening the door to Judah's enemies. Isaiah's furious. Spoiler alert, preview for next week. Isaiah's furious when that happens. Because how, long, how hard has Isaiah worked to convince Hezekiah, trust God! Not gold, not horses, not political alliances. Trust God. And Hezekiah goes back to, to, to being lazy, to being a show-off. And verse 8, that's the only verse I want to look at. Chapter 39, verse 8. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you've spoken is good. When, when Isaiah gets done saying, God is going to have to judge our nation now because of what you've done. Hezekiah says to Isaiah, Well, that's, that's good. Because at least there'll be peace and truth in my days. 
God's going to judge your nation, Hezekiah. <laughs> yeah, but I won't be here to see it. Can you imagine? God gave him life and then new life. Why? To praise him. And there was a time when he knew it, we just read about it. God gave us life and new life. For what purpose? To praise him. You and I were born because of God. You and I were born again because of God. For what purpose? To praise him. But we look around and we know we need to be a little careful judging Hezekiah because our excitement and passion and enthusiasm wanes a little bit, doesn't it? Brother in the church posted this morning on social media, he said, why are new believers usually more effective in leading people to the Lord than people who have been walking with Jesus for 20 years? Why do new church plants attract more people and more excitement than churches that have been around for 40 years, 100 years? Because we're a little bit like Hezekiah. Once we have that new life, and we get used to that new life, and we believe, okay, it's real and God's not going to take it away from me, we get complacent. What are we given this new life to do? Love God, love others. We're here to worship Him with our lives. Love God, love others, especially love others. Hezekiah was wrong. The dead can praise. The dead can worship. The dead in Christ, that is. Can praise, will praise for all of eternity. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There's only one thing we get to do here that we won't do in eternity. We will praise in eternity. What we get to do here, we get to praise in the sight of others. We get to love God in the sight of others. We get to love others in the name of God. Maybe others who don't know God. But even then, how do we know who? How do we know how? How do we know what? Hezekiah had it. Before he lost it, he had it. Verse 15, walk carefully. What shall I say? He's both spoken to me and he himself has done it. I shall walk carefully all my years. Listening. Waiting on the Lord. Stubbornly coveting the still small voice, the perfect peace that surpasses understanding, that, that says this is the way. This is the Lord's leading. Hezekiah was a middle-aged guy while all of this is going down. Paul Tripp says middle age is where dreams go to die. Because middle age is when we realize we are the people that we are. And we're not going to change very much, and our lives probably won't change very much. Now people respond to that realization in different ways. There's, there's the stereotypical midlife crisis where people reject it, defy it, act down against it, buy their muscle car, buy their motorcycle and a bigger motorcycle, divorce their wife for a younger, prettier wife. I'm not going to give in to middle age. I'm not going to go down quietly. Watch me. At the other end of the spectrum, 
There's, there's the one that resists middle age. There's the other one who just capitulates to it. Rolls over, surrenders. Not surrender in the, in the way that we usually talk about. Not surrender in the sense of acceptance. That's a good thing. Surrender in the, in the sense of acquiescence, in the sense of defeat. Life won. I lost. So now there's just waiting. Now there's just existing. Some of you work in places where you have coworkers that have retired in place. Yeah? Retired in place, retired in role, retired on the job. They're collecting a check, but they're phoning it in. They're going through the motion. Some people do that with life. They stop living before they have to. They stop living while they're still alive. I can't do the thing I want. I'm never going to get to do the thing I always wanted. So I'm going to do nothing. There's an alternative. And Hezekiah had it. Verse 15, he said he was going to walk carefully, what? All of his years. He was going to praise, verse 19, while he was living. He was going to worship, verse 20, all of his days. All means all. He stopped short of all. We can't, we must not stop short of all. I look at Ed. Obviously, I'm tremendously fond of him. But I also respect him deeply. Baptist pastor, and God says, yeah, that isn't the, 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 the path I have for you. Starts over as a janitor in Calvary, and then an assistant pastor, and then a senior pastor. And he's got a church, and the church is doing well, and, and the church is paying his salary, and he says, okay, but I'm going to walk away from that. Because I'm going to choose insecurity to be a pastor of pastors because that's what God is telling me to do now. His ministry changes, but it doesn't stop. Gail. Gail was a pastor. Before he was traveling around wearing the suspenders saying, abounding, Gail actually pastored a church in Garden City, Kansas. And a bunch of other places. He was an Assemblies of God pastor. And pastored in Louisiana and Missouri and Kansas and a bunch of other places before God called him out and said, I want you to, to not be tied down to one church. I want you to talk to a lot of churches. I want you to talk to church movements. I want you to talk to denominational conferences. And I want you to do it on different continents. And then there was a time that God said, yeah, I don't want you to do that anymore because you have a ministry to one person. Her name is Ada. So his ministry was, was to Ada, and then when, when, when I interviewed him a couple years ago, if you remember, he said, my other ministry is on my front porch. And I get a big jar of dog biscuits, and I have a ministry to the people walking by. And I, and I feed their dogs dog biscuits, and I talk to them about Jesus. And now he's in assisted living. I'm going to be surprised if we don't see another book. He's bored. He's calling up people, and he's showing up on podcasts and, and, and videos and stuff. Because he's not done. Because he hasn't lived all his years yet. You know, talking about pastors, but it's no different for anyone. We're all called to ministry. We all have spiritual gifts. We all have a part to play in the Great Commission. And yeah, we all have seasons of life. We all have seasons of life where what we're able to do, what we're called to do, both change. Different seasons, different callings, different ministries, different places, different people. One thing doesn't change. 
In every season of life, one thing doesn't change. In every season of life, God has something for all of us to do. I look at people who are retired. Man, retired people are the best mentors. Whether through Youth Horizons, whether to, to couples dealing with unplanned pregnancy through Embrace here at the church. Retired people make the best mentors. Brother of mine had, had very fast-acting liver cancer. From the time he was diagnosed to the time he went home to the Lord, it happened very, very quickly. But he spent that, those days in a hospital bed because God said, I want you to talk about what this is like. And I want you to tell people how to minister to people like you. And he recorded a series of videos, even in a hospital bed. Other people in bed at home, writing, calling, encouraging. Hey, I can't get out to see you, but I can call you. I can't get to church to, to hug you, but I can write you a card. I can't get to where you are, but I go before God's throne of grace every day interceding for you. Our most faithful baker in the, in the fellowship is someone who's homebound. All of our days, God has something for us. I can't do a whole day. I can't do an all of a day. I can only go half a day. Okay, God. What do you have for that half a day? I, I, I can't do a half a day. I can't, I can't do days. I can, I can only do hours. Okay, God, what do you have for those hours? God, what should I do? That has to be our question. If I look at what I want to do, what I always wanted to do, what I plan to do, what I think I should do, I've got 15 years left. I should write that book. 15 years left. I should, I should pastor a bigger church. 15 years left. I should go to the missions field. Fifteen years left, I should, I should. Fifteen years left, I should pray. God, what do you have for me? Because if I can, if I can think of it, it's too small. If I can dream it, it's less than God has for the days that he ordains. Fifteen years, maybe God gives me more. All of us. Fifteen years. Maybe, maybe some of us have a fraction of that. What does he have? We don't know. We don't know until we ask. God, this life is from you. I was dying. That's not true. I was dead in my sin. And God, you gave me new life. What do you have for me to do? You redeemed me. How would you redeem my days? Lord, thank you. Oh, Lord. We were more than dead. We were eternally dead. And we would have gone to the grave and never praised you. And never known you. Never known your love. Never heard your voice never experienced the joy and the peace that only comes from you. Lord, bring us back to our first love. Bring us back to the passion, to the determination to be used of you, to make a difference, to be a difference. 
to be different. To live for you in a world intent on living for itself. Revive us, Lord.